Hope at Crossroads. We are glad you're taking the time to listen. As you tune in today, if you need encouragement or prayer, please reach out to us by texting 864-288-1626. Or you can connect with us through our website, hope at crossroads.org. Spread the word to your friends and let them know they can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Videos of our messages are also online at hope at crossroads.org. And now, here's this week's message. Praise the Lord. All right, there we go. Technology is on our side. Amen. Dear sisters and brothers, it is wonderful to be with you this morning. I greet you in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to rush to express my thanks to Pastor Jack Eason um, for allowing me once more to come and share from God's word with you. And I want to uh, thank uh, Sister Lynette Eason, who in my tradition we would call First Lady Lynette Eason, uh, for allowing me uh, to be in her home so much the past 48 hours. Um, When you have me in your home, It's like having a child in your home again. So God bless you. You'll be glad when I'm on my flight home. I assure you, you'll thank God your home is quiet again. But it's wonderful to be with you, the Crossroads family, and to see all of you, uh, my dear brothers, who I was able to spend time sharing in the word with um, yesterday. It's good to see each of you as well. Those of you who I have not met and those of you who have been kind uh, to greet me once more as a brother in the Lord as I've made my way here the Crossroads family. Amen. Well, you did not hear, uh, you did not come to hear me, so let us turn our attention to God's word. Uh, Pastor Jack is guiding us through the book of Genesis, and uh, I believe my assignment is chapters three and four. So I'm going to do my best to preach our way through chapters three and four. We're going to hop, skip, and jump a little bit, but that's what we'll do. Now we're going to put our attention, our focus of our sermonic time together on chapter three, verses 1 through 7, and we will work our way through 3 and 4, but our attention will be given to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And before I begin reading scripture, I also want to make sure I mention, um, I was uh, speaking with my dear bride this morning, and Tara wanted me to give you her greeting uh, from cold Wichita, Kansas. Uh, Right about now, she is rousing our seven children about the house, getting them ready to go to worship. Praise the Lord. She is doing the Lord's work, and I'm so glad I'm here with you as... Don't tell her I said that. Are we live stream right now? I didn't mean that, babe. No, I miss you big time. Wish I was there. I'm sure it's fun. All right. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Read as thus. Allow me to read the word of the Lord into our hearing, and then we'll move forward and see what the Spirit of the Lord has to say to us this morning. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at first 1, reads as thus in the English Standard Version of God's holy word. Now the servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God True, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the that it was a delight to the eyes and 
said that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Lord, let the seed of your word fall on the good ground of our ready hearts and bear much fruit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From that text, I would like to talk about this theme or tag the sermon, Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost. Pastor Eason has, uh, Pastor Eason has faithfully walked us through Genesis chapters 1 and 2 the past couple of Sundays. And throughout these past two sermons, he has been intentional in pointing out the difference between God's created order and the order or the chaos that we find ourselves in today. This is the trouble that we live in. Our God, who is the creator of all, created the world and all that is within it, the cosmos and those things beyond with his word and with his word he created it all with order and our difficulty is as we look across our world as we look across our nation as we look across our state as you look across your county your city and even as you look into your own homes you see the order that God has created is in many ways disrupted and oftentimes embattled and that is the difficulty that we live within it's part of the reason why I applaud Pastor Eason for being willing to preach his way through Genesis, because there are moments in the text where it's difficult to deal with, and I'm going to tell you what's difficult about preaching. Everything in the Bible is not cotton candy fun and carnival rides. There are difficulties within Scripture that must be wrestled with, and you cannot grow in God if you are not willing to take the fullness of God's counsel, and that's the difficulty sometimes with preaching. Sometimes you have to get up and take a text that's just tough. And I love preaching about miracles. I love preaching about God's provision. I love preaching about how God's going to make it all better in your life. I love preaching about how God's going to give you uninterrupted health, wealth, prosperity, and an all-around good time. My God Almighty. It seems like every time I see a preacher on television, that's the word God gave them. My Lord. Sometimes I wonder why God keeps giving all these preachers the same word. I really wonder if it's more about fundraising, but that's for another sermon. I won't talk about that now. Anyhow, there are portions of scripture that are tough, that are difficult, that make us wrestle, that make us think, and that are downright troubling. But here's the good news. There are parts of life that are tough, that are difficult, that have us scratching our heads, that make us think, that we have to wrestle through. And I believe that is the beauty of God's holy word. God doesn't just talk about good times. God talks about the tough stuff. And that works for me because my life is not always full of good times. My life has some tough stuff in it. And you don't have to say amen back to me. You can just look amen if you're comfortable with that. I can see those amens and I can hear a few of them too. That's right. Your life is tough. It has some tough stuff in it. So God's word is good for us to look at. Here is the truth of the matter. If you look at Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 and 14, Jesus speaks these words. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. You are the light of the world, a city set 
set on a hill cannot be hidden. And we say that all the time. As a matter of fact, I say it to my own children before I drop them off at school each day. I tell Savannah, I tell Charles, I tell Matthew, I tell KJ. As they go off to school, those are our four who are in school right now. We've got three more who are at home. But when I let them out, I tell them they are to be a beacon of light for Christ and salt in the school building that they go into. And that's a good word for a parent because I'm reminding my children that Jesus is not contained to the four walls of Crossroad Baptist Church. Jesus is never contained to the four walls of Tabernacle Bible Church while I'm a member in Wichita, Kansas. But Jesus desires us to take the salt and the light into the schoolhouse, into our office building, into the grocery store, into the neighborhood, to the Little League field, to the gym where our children are shooting hoops, getting ready for another season, to the baseball field, whether I'm sitting in the stands or I'm the one playing on the field, he wants me to be salt and light. And this is Jesus's word that he leaves with us. Be a light like a city on a hill and be salt that never loses its savoriness. But here's the problem. And here's where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven. This is why this text matters by Jesus suggesting that I should be salt and light. Jesus is also suggesting that there's a a world full of decay and darkness. Do y'all see that there? The reason I have to be salt and be a preservative is because Jesus says the world is decaying. The reason I have to be a light is because Jesus is assuming darkness. And I know I don't have to convince anybody in this room that we live in a decaying world and we live in a dark world. And Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven, help us to understand how it came to be so. And I believe there are some helpful and holy hints for living here in Genesis chapter three, as we address this issue that is oftentimes known as the fall. Here, as we read the fall, we see the picture of who God is. That's right. Genesis chapter three is not just a whole bunch of bad news, but it gives us a picture of who our God is and who we are and even who our adversary is. And the clarity of who Jesus Christ is, is seen against the backdrop of this darkness. Let me tell you something, because nothing becomes dynamic until it becomes specific. When I was a few years younger, I had met this beautiful young lady and I wanted to make her my bride, but I had to buy her a ring because that was only the appropriate thing to do. So I got all my money together. I saved for a summer and I went to buy this ring for Tara. And when I got in the jewelry shop, I started speaking to the jeweler and the jeweler talked to me about all these various C's, the cut and the carrot and the clarity, all that different stuff. Some of you men have been through. And I went, huh? Cause I don't know anything about this stuff. I just wanted to buy a ring. And apparently the process is more complicated than that. And the jeweler would hold up different diamonds in front of me and tell me about the cut. Tell me about the clarity. Tell me about the carrots. None of it meant anything to me because every diamond looked exactly the same that the man was showing me. Sure. He was an expert, but all I really saw was the price, right? I was like, why is this one cheaper than that one? They look the same to me. But then he did something that changed my view of every diamond he was showing me and telling me about. He took out a piece of black velvet. He laid it on the countertop and he took the same group of diamonds he had been showing me held up in the air and he placed them against a backing of black velvet and then placed a light on them. And somehow that dark backing of black velvet 
that the diamond was placed against illuminated every element of the diamond. And suddenly every diamond looked differently to me. And I am saying, even as we look at Genesis chapter three and we see the fall of man and we see all of these curses that were handed down and we see sin entering in the world, I want to suggest that even as you look at the darkness of this sheet of velvet, it is simply a position of illumination for God's greatness. So here it is in the text. God has created this paradise. God has placed man into it. And God has decided that man does not have a helper suitable for him. So there's good news right there in the text. God puts this man to sleep. God pulls a rib out of this man. God creates a woman. And as Pastor Reason has already told you, he said, whoa, man, my goodness gracious. That's a good word right there. The first piece of poetry happens not when a man is created, but when a woman is created. And I thank God for a woman. I got to tell you right here, I love my daddy. He's a good man, but he ain't got nothing on my mama. I love my daddy. He sure worked hard for us, but he ain't got nothing on Bonnie Pearl Brown. I think he's a good man. He's been faithful. He's hung in there, but there ain't nothing like a good woman. And so God creates this woman. God gives this woman to the man and here they are joined together. But the text shows us that there is this issue of sin that will soon creep in on this man and this woman as they are together in this space of paradise. Here it is in the text and you can read it quite plainly. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, did Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. It's important to understand in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, God is going to give restrictions as to what can be done while they're in the garden. It says in verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, if you shall, uh, uh, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's important to note that when the serpent comes to Eve, Eve is not afraid of the serpent. Now that That makes sense. Now, it's even a talking serpent, and she's not in the text afraid of a talking serpent. Why is that? Because in this perfect paradise that Eve and Adam have been placed into, there's nothing to fear. She's not afraid of this creature, and she's not afraid of this creature talking. Because to Eve's understanding, this would simply be another one of God's created creatures that are moving around this paradise with them. But we should know, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, Paul says, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's important to pick this up so that we understand who our God is and the forces that work against us. Here it is. Satan chooses to inhabit a body that does not make the woman fearful. And we all need to understand this as we walk with God. Can I tell you something? 
something, I'm going to bust somebody's bubble. You all have seen the cartoons. You've seen the movies. The devil is always big. He's always hairy. He's always red. He has giant horns coming out of his head. He breathes fire. He has a pitchfork. And he stalks around and scares little children everywhere. But the truth is, that is not how our adversary works. That's not how Satan presents himself. Paul says Satan will oftentimes present himself as an angel of light. And here in the text, Satan takes on the form of a created creature because it will make Eve comfortable having the conversation. Do y'all see where I'm going with this particular matter? It's important for us to be prayerful and communing with God throughout the day because we never know how the enemy is presenting himself. But one way Satan will never present himself is in a way that is unappealing to you. Can I say this from a young sisters out there? Okay, those single sisters out there, uh, Satan will always present himself to pull you away from God as the most handsome young man you've ever seen in your life. Oh, he's tall. He's got an athletic build. He drives a nice car. He says everything the right way. He opens every door. He buys your great meals, but he just wants you to stop going to church so much. My young brothers, Satan will always present himself and pull you away through the most pretty creature you've ever seen in your life. She'll be sweet talking and she'll smell good too. My God almighty, will she smell good? Even if you don't see her going by, you'll smell her going by and you'll... There she goes. And that's how the enemy pulls us away. Satan doesn't pull us away by attaching us to a job that underpays us. For some of us adults in the room, he'll pull you away from church by giving you a promotion that overpays you. So you can't turn down the extra overtime and you don't have time for church anymore. Satan doesn't pull you away by giving you some jalopy of a car you don't want to drive in. Oftentimes he'll pull you away by giving you the car of your dreams, the one you always wanted to such a point where instead of going and worshiping with the saints on a Wednesday, you want to take a ride to the countryside in your brand new car. He is an enticer. He is a liar. He is an enemy. And he is constantly positioning himself in a way that is comfortable and convenient to draw us away from God. Listen to the conversation that he has with Eve. The first thing we see this enemy do with Eve is begin to help her question God's truthfulness and God's goodness. If you read verse one, uh, verse one, you'll see these words through verse five. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now I read you chapter two, verses 15 through 17. So we were all clear in our minds with what God actually said. Satan's question is, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But Verse 16 tells us, and the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Can you see the difference there? Satan begins the conversation with what God said you can't do, but God begins the conversation with what they can do. And that's one of the works of the enemy to get you to question God, always to pull your focus on the things God said you are not to be doing. 
doing, the relationship you shouldn't be in, the thing you shouldn't be looking at online, the television show you shouldn't be watching, the music you shouldn't be engaging, the messages you shouldn't be sending, the relationships you shouldn't be holding on to. The enemy is always pointing us to question God's goodness by pointing out the things that you can't have because the enemy is always trying to compel us that the grass is greener on the other side. But you know what I've learned? Even though the grass may be greener on the other side, when you get there, you got to mow that grass too. So it's just more life that has to be lived. He gets her to question the truthfulness and goodness of God first by suggesting God's prohibition above the things that God is allowing. God said, enjoy every tree in the garden. But Satan says, didn't he say you can't eat from this particular tree? Secondly, as you move down the text, a woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of any trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Now here's the problem. As Satan begins to question the truthfulness of what God said, Eve begins to misquote God. She says, he said, we can't eat it and we can't touch it. But did God ever say in the text they couldn't touch it? That's not there. God said you can't eat it. So you begin to see how Satan is drawing Eve into a dialogue that is helping her to question the truth of what God has stated. And it begins to mix up even Eve's knowledge of God's word. Can I say this to you? This is why we have to have our Bibles open each and every day. This is why my brother is right. Scripture is a piece of our survival gear and we should have God word tucked away with us wherever we go because his his word is truth that's why God in his word says thy word have I hidden in my heart because as I hide the truth of God's word in my heart when it's questioned I will know the truth Eve eventually begins to question this truth along with the serpent here's the final thing I want to point out in this conversation she says neither shall you touch it but as you go further down the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now there is the questioning of God's goodness, God's intention. The enemy begins to suggest the only reason God does not want you eating of this tree is because God is withholding something from you. I hope you all hear me right now as I walk through this. Ultimately, what the enemy wants you to do is to question. God's truth and as you question his truth begin to question the goodness of God and somebody in this room needs to hear this you may be going through difficulties in life but don't you question the goodness of God you may be going through the storms of life but don't give up on the goodness of your God you may be facing circumstances that you weren't prepared for but don't give up on the goodness of God keep holding on to the goodness of God because in us understanding God's goodness, we are filled with God's joy. And that's why God's word says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Lord, I may be going through, but I know that you're good. So I have joy in you. Lord, I may be in difficulty, but I know that you're good. So I have joy in you. Lord, I may not know when the darkness that is covering my life is going to end, but I have joy in you because I know that you are a good 
good God, even in difficult times. But Satan's ultimate goal is not only to get her to question, his goal is also to get her to reject the truth of God's word. That's verse six. Listen to it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate. And that was the enemy's end game. The enemy attempts to get you to question God's truth. Then he gets you to question God's goodness as you question his truth. But the enemy doesn't want you just questioning. He wants you to take a step and actively reject God's truth. This entire dialogue is all about one thing. Getting Eve and Adam to a point of active disobedience and introducing chaos into their lives and into the world. And now we stand at the edge of this text. They've both eaten the fruit and now sin begins invading the world. And that's the problem with sin. It's always easy to start. But sin will always take you further than you want to go. And sin will always keep you longer than you want it to stay. Sin always begins quietly behind some closed door as you consider something that you know is counter to God's will. And once you take hold of that, the enemy pulls you further and further and further and further until you look up. Can I tell you all something? Uh, Every alcoholic I have spent time counseling and praying and working with started with their first drink. Isn't that amazing? Uh, None of them started their journey towards alcoholism with their eighth drink. It's always that first drink. And it's interesting how when you speak to someone who is stuck in addiction, they can oftentimes follow the entire path back to a moment, back to an experience, back to a period, back to a season in their life where they said, I'm going to try this or I'm just going to use this for a moment. And they look up. And sin has entangled itself around them. And this is the fall. Watch how quickly sin invades. They eat the fruit God told them not to eat. When you read verse 8, you'll see that they're hiding from God. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees. Suddenly this act of sin has them hiding from the same God who they once loved and fellowshiped with. Jump to verses 9 through 10. They say, But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. Now we see fear and shame are suddenly in the garden as well. There's hiding in the garden suddenly. Now there's fear and shame in the garden suddenly. And then read verses 12 through 13. This is a dynamic that happens between Adam and Eve. Verse 12 and 13 say, the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? 
And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. As soon as they hid and they were in fear and they were ashamed, relationships broke. It's oftentimes pointed out as a piece of the text that's humorous. And it is kind of because it's the man saying, hey, you gave me this lady and she's a wild one. That's where it all went wrong. You did this, Jesus. This is on you. But do you see how quickly it goes from poetry to hatred? From him loving this thing that God has created to him trying to shift the blame to it as quickly as possible. Brothers and sisters, this is the fracture that yet exists between us today. It's the fracture we see in our marriages It's the fracture we see in our relationships as parents with our children and our grandchildren. It's the fracture, dare I say, y'all, this might be, after I make this statement, it might be the last time y'all have me. And if it is, God bless you. It's been nice seeing y'all a couple of times. I've really enjoyed it. And y'all are some good people. This is the fracture that exists at Crossroads Baptist Church. This is why it's so tough for us to remain in fellowship. Because we're broken people. And because we're broken people, It's hard to be in relationship with one another. And this is why so many of our relationships can move from poetry to hatred so quickly. This is for for those married folk who are out there. This is one of the difficulties in marriage counseling. Because as you talk to couples who are headed for divorce and about to pull their world apart, um, You're sitting with a young man and you're asking him, something good must have been in her because you married her. Do y'all see what I'm getting at? And suddenly that young man can't see anything good in that woman. Uh, You're sitting with a young woman and you're saying, there must have been something. The two of you stood together before God and committed your lives to one another. And suddenly that young woman can't see anything redeeming in that man. It's fractured relationships, friends. This is why we have to do the work of connecting with one another, the work of praying for one another, the work of bearing with one another. When, it, when scripture teaches us to bear with one another, it's teaching us to hold on to one another even though we're broken because anyone in here who has been married for any sustainable period of time At some point you accept it, the person you married is crazy. (laughs) Can I get an amen? Amen. Yes, they are. You know it. Don't tell no lie. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, once made the comment that she never thought of divorcing Billy. But she did think of killing him a few times. (laughs) It was a consideration. It's on the table. I'm just saying. Some of you women could testify. Sometimes you look at your husband and you go, you know, I want to make your appointment with Jesus right now. (laughs) Goodness gracious, what's wrong with this guy? We don't make it because we're perfect. We make it because we extend the grace of God to one another. Because we are marred by sin. So our natural disposition is to fracture My natural disposition is to fracture with Tara. When I'm frustrated by something she does, my natural posture is to fracture. She's wrong. 
I'm angry, I don't care for her. That's our natural disposition. And isn't it amazing? In my world, I'm the greatest guy I know. If everybody could just be like me, this would be a wonderful place. Beautiful. Wow. The relationship fractures. We see hiding from God. We see fear and shame. We see fractured relationships. And then verses 14 through 19 move us through the curses which God laid out that came as a result of disobedience and sin entering the world. We see the serpent's going to crawl on its belly. We see enmity between the serpent and the woman. We see, uh, we see uh, the, the serpent, the woman, and the offspring of the woman. We see childbearing pain. We see thorns and thistles come up from the ground. We see difficulty in work. As Pastor Eason has so aptly proclaimed, it's not that work came with the curse because God had already assigned Adam to tend the garden. God anticipated us to be workers. But the difficulty of labor, the difficulty of tilling the ground, the sweat of our brow to get things to grow is the difficulty that met humankind and was a part of our punishment and our sin. As you make your way into chapter four, you don't only see the fall, but now you see the spread of the, the spread of sin. It displays itself perfectly here. The writer tells a story of Cain and Abel. These brothers are sons of Adam and Eve. And you're going to see through this broken relationship that continues forward, anger, murder, deceit, and generational sin passing from father and mother to child. Chapter four, verses three through five say in the course of the time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering he had no regard so Cain was very angry and fell to his face it's Cain's anger and Cain's jealousy with his brother that the Lord had accepted Abel's offering because the Lord could see the positioning of Abel's heart but the Lord had rejected Cain's offering because the Lord could see the positioning of Cain's heart Here's what's interesting. Cain does not decide to correct his own heart. Rather, Cain decides to lash out at his brother. Once again, we see the brokenness in relationships. He murders his own brothers. And in verses 9 and 10, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And Cain responds, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Here is the deception. God says, what has happened to your brother? And Cain's immediate response is, I have no idea. Is it my job to watch him? Do you see the deception before God? Do you see how all of these matters of hiding, of fear, of shame, of jealousy, of anger, of murder are moving from a mother and a father to their children? So the next time we look upon our children and we say, I don't believe you just did that. Pause right there. Mom and dad, walk away from that child, find your nearest mirror and look in it. They did it because they're just as broken as you are. They did it because they're just as sinful as you are. They did it because they're just as marred as you are. And one of the things I've had to learn as a dad with a middle schooler is I got to be honest with my children. Because here's, here's, here's the opportunity we're given as parents. We can reshape our histories in front of our children, can't we? They don't know the truth. 
They don't know what we did. They never knew us as middle schoolers. They didn't know us as high schoolers. My children assume I was born at 30 years old. That's how they think I came out of the womb, shaving and everything. This is also the reason I don't like them spending a lot of time without being monitored with grandma and grandpa. Because my dad has the tendency to tell stories. I'm like, dad, you're not helping my parenting right now. Let me tell you about your daddy. I'm like, no, don't tell them about their daddy. Let's keep secrets. That's what we need to do. Keep everything in closets. We won't tell anything to each other. We'll all live in hiding from one another and it'll be great. The issue is we have to be honest. As Adam and Eve fall from God, so their children fall from God. And then we move through chapter four and we begin to see Cain's punishment and those who come from Cain's family. Uh, We begin to, we meet uh, Lamech, who is one of Cain's descendants, his great, great grandson who commits a murder himself. Genesis 4, 23 and 24 share that he came to his wives and said, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. This is, our first, uh, this is our first picture of polygamy within scripture. He has two wives and he says, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77 fold. So now we have another murder taking place in the family line. Sin continues to spread its tentacles. And brothers and sisters, this is the dark velvet upon which... We must place the diamond of understanding our God. Because you have a fall, then in chapter 4 you have the spread of sin from generation to generation, which still impacts us today. But also if you read chapters 3 and 4 very carefully, and here's where I end my sermon, you find rays of hope, oddly tucked away in the text. Chapter 3, verse 15, in the midst of God passing out curses for them having sinned, in verse 15 of chapter 3, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He tells the serpent, the woman is going to give birth to a child and you will bruise the heel of that child, but that child will crush your head. This is the first messianic foretelling of scripture. God is already in the midst of the curses telling mankind, I've got a plan in mind for how I'm going to redeem everything that just took place in this garden. And here's the good news. Then you find out at the end of chapter four, after Cain has killed Abel and he's been banished from the presence of God. When you make your way through all of Cain's descendants and when you meet Lamech who is a murderer himself, the great great grandson of Cain, chapter 4 ends with this declaration and Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth for God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and called his name Enosh and at that time people began to call upon the name of 
the Lord. In the middle of chapter three, God promises Jesus. And at the end of chapter four, we find out another son is given to Eve by the name of Seth. Seth has a son whose name is Enosh. And it's at that point in time that the worship of God begins amongst the people of God. The redemptive work of God taking his remnant people, putting them in spaces like Crossroads Baptist Church and being a light into the world. Chapter four, at the end of the fall, at the end of the curses, at the end of the sin, at the end of the murder, the deceit, the deception, and the fracturing of relationship, God begins to lift up a worshiping people into the world who he is bringing back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that when I first began preaching, my father told me, make sure, son, you never make this preaching mistake. Don't ever mount the pulpit and not tell the people about Jesus. Always tell the people that he came down through 40 and two generations. Always tell the people that he healed the sick, that he raised the dead, that he gave hearing to those who could not hear, sight to those who could not see. Always tell the people that he was falsely accused. Always tell the people that he was beaten beyond recognition, but never said what the old saints at my church would say, a mumbling word. Always tell the people that he took an old rugged cross upon his back, that he walked down the Via Della Rosa and up Galgotha's Hill. Always tell the people that they hung him high. Always tell the people that they stretched him wide. Always tell the people that they put nails in his hand and a rivets in his feet. Always tell the people that a crown of thorn was in his head. Always tell the people that they pierced him in his side until blood and water flowed separately. Always tell the people that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Always tell the people he stayed there all night Friday night. Always tell the people he stayed there all day Saturday. Always tell the people he stayed there all all night Saturday night. And always tell the people that early, bright early, one Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hands, conquering death, hell, and the grave. Because out of the fall of paradise, God brings us back into paradise. And that's why even though sin is crouched at your door, you can keep on believing and keep on hoping because he has finished the work on the cross. That's why even if your child is struggling with sin, you can keep on believing and keep on hoping because he's already conquered sin. That's why even if your marriage is in turmoil, God fixes marriages. God restores health. God brings us back to ourselves. And that is why even if a loved one has transitioned on to glory, you don't have to mourn as those who have no hope because our end here is only the beginning over there because God has redeemed us from the curse. That is the good news. Even when we see the fall from paradise. God is actively opening the door to paradise again. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the light that we carry in this darkened world. And that is the salt that we sprinkle in this decaying world. That even though we have fallen from paradise, we have a God who is so loving, who is so committed, and who cares so deeply for us. 
that he has already worked out the problem. And he invites us into relationship with him. And it's not simply a message of some great by and by. It's same God, same Savior, who died on an old rugged cross and shed his blood, who conquered death, hell, and the grave, desires to walk this journey with each and every one of us today. We get some storms in Kansas, and they can get mighty rough. And our boys are still fairly young. And whenever we have a big storm blowing in that's going to have a lot of wind and a lot of rain, our boys do the same thing. They have this shuffle they do right before bedtime. They come downstairs to our room. They peek their heads through the door. And they begin making requests. And these are the requests that our five boys make. Can I sleep in Charles' bed? Can I sleep in KJ's bed? Me and Matthew are going to sleep together. Oh, yeah, AC is going to sleep with us, too. All the beds they have upstairs, and all five of them end up in one bed. (laughs) This is the reason why. Because when lightning's flashing outside, when rain is pelting the window, when tree branches look like monsters in the shadows trying to creep into the room, They don't necessarily need to run away from the room. They just want to have somebody in it with them. I came all the way from Wichita, Kansas, to tell somebody this morning, yes, we're broken. Yes, we're struggling with sin. Yes, we're fighting an adversary that sometimes it feels like has us surrounded. But in Christ Jesus, we're not in it alone. We have a Savior who is mighty to save, who holds us together, who lifts us up, and who has given us the victory. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and pray with me? I don't know how the Lord has spoken to you today. Maybe you are here. And you do not know the end of the story that Neelan shared that there is a way out of sin and it is accepting the free gift and the grace of Jesus. If that's you today, in just a minute, we're going to have a hymn of invitation. We're going to sing a song inviting you to respond to what God through the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart. And if that's you today and you need Jesus, I'll be here. I'm going to ask my friend Heath to come and join me. Maybe God has spoken to you in some other way this morning through his word. I'm sure that he has. And if you need to respond this morning, we'll be down here at the front. Or, of course, you can respond there in your seat. But I just encourage you to do what the Lord leads you to do. Father, I pray that you would have your way during this invitation. Lord, thank you for the reminder that we live in a fallen world. For some of us, that is a heavy thing. And the even greater reminder that you have overcome the world in which we live, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, you empower us to be those diamonds on that piece of velvet. So maybe you've spoken to us today about ways we need to do that. Whatever you have spoken to us, Lord, I pray that we would respond accordingly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.
We hope you've been challenged and inspired from today's message. You can find out more about the message you have heard today by visiting our website, hope at crossroads.org. If you live in the upstate South Carolina area and you're looking for a church home, we hope you'll come by and visit sometime. Details about our church and service times can also be found online. In addition, we want to invite you to check out some of the great items at our website that will help you, or you can give as a gift to a friend. Devotionals and other resources are all available at hope at crossroads.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you will tune in again next week.